Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning, and as we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so excited about your character of love and your design for life, and we we ask that your spirit will join us as we study today, and that you will open the avenues of communication around the world, that this message will lighten the world, and you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly, the Gospel of Galatians, and the title is Paul's Pastoral Appeal. And... The first paragraph, if we look at the first paragraph, it says the following. As we've seen so far, Paul did not mince words with the Galatians. His his strong language, however, simply reflected the inspired passion he felt concerning the spiritual welfare of the church that he had founded. Besides the crucial theological issues Paul was dealing with, the letter to the Galatians in a broad sense also shows just how important correct doctrine is. If what we believe were not that important, if doctrinal correctness didn't matter all that much, then why would Paul have been so fervent, so uncompromising in his letter? The truth is, of course, that what we believe matters greatly, especially concerning the whole question of the gospel. Does correct doctrine matter? Yes. For what? It does, you're right. But the question is why? What is the importance, the central, the key importance to correct doctrine? Functional purpose. Functional purpose, somebody said? Image of God. What it says about God. So, if you want a Bible text, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and you all know this one. Though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice, these divine weapons, we're demolishing strongholds. Are these nuclear weapons? No. Notice what they're demolishing. We demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. The central issue in this war that we're in are distortions about God and our weapons are those that destroy those distortions. Thus, doctrine will always be in some way, if it's correct doctrine, informing us, enlightening us about reality and reality has its origins in the creator of all reality which takes us back to the truth about God. This is what all doctrine is important for. If you think about it, what did the war in heaven start over? Whether God could be trusted or not. How did it spread to earth? How did Adam and Eve fall into sin? What was the issue? Whether they could trust God or not. This is always the central issue. So let's ask some clarifying questions. We're going to reason this out together. What does it mean to be saved? To be with Christ. That's the result of salvation. To be restored to what we were supposed to be. Okay, restoration to God's original design for humankind in Eden. Okay. So you're describing a healing, restorative process. Is that something that's declared legally, a legal declaration, a legal ruling? No, it's not. It's not a legal ruling. It's an actual regeneration of healing of the heart and mind. Can a person be saved, restored to God's original ideal, have the law written on the heart and mind, as it says in Hebrews. Can a person experience that while they hold, while they hold to fear, selfishness, and deceit? Get your mind. That's what's right. Why can't they experience it if they cling to fear, selfishness, and deceit? Why? Because they haven't. It'd be like a person saying, "Can you have health while you're ingesting cyanide?" You can't have, because it's actually a violation of how life is built. That's why these things are out of harmony with God's design for life. So you cannot have restoration to health while you're holding the things that are out of harmony with that design. Can a person claim to accept the legal payment of Jesus' blood paid in his behalf, but prefer the methods of coercion, fear, and selfishness? Can you claim... I have accepted the blood payment of Jesus, but I prefer to practice methods of coercion and self-centeredness. Absolutely. Isn't that what much of history has shown us? The methods of the church have been primarily self-sacrifice or authoritarianism. Are such persons who have claimed the blood payment of Jesus as their legal to pay their sin debt, but they practice methods of selfishness and coercion and force and even deceit, are those persons saved? Are they saved? Why not? 
They've accepted you. They've said the sinner's prayer. They've been baptized by immersion. They've done the right ritual. They partake of chemo. They do football. Why are they not saved if they claim these things but practice methods of coercion and deceit? They don't have Christ's care. They don't have Christ's care. It would be like this, guys. George Washington, first president of our country, died of pneumonia. But when he got pneumonia, the doctors diagnosed that his fever was due to evil humors in his blood. And therefore, to treat him, the doctors bled half of his blood supply. Now, do you think a person with pneumonia will get well if you bleed half their blood supply? And you who are not doctors in here, people without a medical training, do you think if you're sick with fever and we bleed half your blood supply, you'll get better? See, you have so much common knowledge about medical stuff today, you know that that's not going to help, that you'll destroy the immune system. Your immune system can't fight off the infection. Back in Washington's day, though, do you think the doctors who were bleeding him were trying to hurt him? No. They were not. Their intention... Now, were the doctors who were bleeding them, were these the ignorant masses, or were these the intelligentsia, the, the medical experts... The knowledgeable ones who have in their heart the intention to do good. See, there's a very powerful lesson I'm getting here, guys. Why did he die then if their intention was right? Because their diagnosis was wrong. He had evil humors. And therefore their treatment not, did not cure. It actually made things worse. This is a problem with the penal legal theology system. It diagnoses our problem as legal problem, like a, like a human courtroom, and therefore it prescribes a legal treatment. Now, the persons, the theologians, the pastors teaching this, they, they're like the doctors. They want to help. They want people to get better. They want to save. They do. They're, they're very distressed when it doesn't work. But they don't understand God's design for life. Yes? Well, that's what I was going to say, too, is their intentions were pure and they were doing everything they knew how to do. And if they would have known something different, they would have eagerly jumped on to whatever the true remedy would have been. Exactly right. Well, partly. Partly. We're going to come to that in the lesson in a moment. Maybe maybe we should jump there. It's all the, all the way down to the end of the lesson about how truth is accepted. When... Man, let's just go ahead and jump there since you brought it up and we'll, and we'll come back because this is, this is very interesting. I want you to imagine you, you could travel back to the 14th century. You have a time machine. You travel back to the 14th century, Europe, bubonic plague, the Black Death, killing 40 to, to 50 million people are dying from this, this. We know today it's Yersinius pestis uh, bacteria carried by fleas. You, you have common knowledge. You know this is an infection. What do you think would happen if you, with your time machine, went back, people are dying, and, and you know the religious and medical authorities are teaching people what? This is a punishment by God for the wickedness of sin. God is, this is God's wrath being taken out on the people for their sinfulness. Now, if you stand up and say, well, there are these invisible little things we call bacteria. You can call them germs, but they're invisible. You can't see them. And, and they're actually getting inside your body and they're attacking you, and they're causing you to get sick and die. And we can fix that simply by good hand washing, and, and, uh, and it has nothing to do with sin. Do you think that the church leadership would have celebrated your, your insights? Or might you have been burned as a witch at the stake? But, but they would celebrate the truth, wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? What, what would have obstructed their willingness to accept something so simple? And do you understand when, when hand-washing came along and, and, and uh, Florence Nightingale began uh, recommending hand-washing before surgery, the doctor said, this is a brilliant idea. No, they didn't. They were resistant. They didn't. When Louis Pasteur came along with his germ theory and began creating vaccines for rabies, and he was not a physician. The medical community said, we love this guy. He's giving us new wisdom and truth. No, they wanted to have him arrested and imprisoned. Why? Lack of understanding. Okay, one, truly they didn't understand, but why were they not open to such clear, it's so obvious to us today. Why, why couldn't they see it? Challenge to their authority. Oh, the big one right here. It's a challenge to their authority. They're the experts, and here comes this person who wasn't trained in their schools, didn't get a degree, weren't blessed by them to have, so they can't acknowledge that this person, there could be some truth that doesn't come through their authority. 
What happened with Christ 2,000 years ago? How is it this man knows having never been educated? He doesn't have our seminary degree. He doesn't have our stamp of approval. We can't learn from him. We get the same thing here. We can't know anything. We don't have a degree in theology. We haven't been stamped and proved. And so Russell told me a few weeks back that uh, there were like four stages to accepting of truth. I think I do. Okay, uh, the four stages. First stage is denial and just denial and ignoring. Rejection. First, it's ignore. Yeah. yeah, ignore and deny. It's like, nah, that's ridiculous. Second is mocking and making fun. Third is outright opposition and writing uh, treatises and, and, and attacking and proving it's wrong. And the fourth is acceptance that that was true all along. And we always knew it. The last part is very important. It's accepted as self-evident. Mm-hmm. It was always understood in them. Oh, well, of course that's right. Well, what else could it be? Okay. And, and, and you notice what we've been doing in this class over the last seven years in this community, initially we were ignored, then we were mocked, and this year there, 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 uh, certain individuals with doctoral degrees have come out with papers and lectures to oppose what we're teaching. So we're, we're almost at stage four. Yes. <laughs> yes. So between stage one and stage three, there are human beings who need to know the truth and who need to be saved in the kingdom. Yes. And who will die. So whose fault is that? So when the sun shines, mm-hmm. okay, and you decide to never come out of a cave and benefit from the, the rays of the sun, whose fault is that? Jesus said those who are in darkness don't want to come into the light. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't want it. The light hurts their eyes. It, it, it causes them to have to make decisions and change things. They've got a box they live in. It's very comfortable. For instance, the leaders in Christ, they didn't want to accept what he was teaching because they would have had to humble themselves. And they were very proud. So things that help people, that cause people to resist these types of evidences are number one, pride and arrogance and not wanting to acknowledge that somebody knows something more than them. So I, I learned some time ago, and I say this not every week, but I say it frequently, we're not here to tell people what to think. We're not the bastion of all knowledge and truth. We want to have a mind, and I've really prayed for this, to have a mind that can grow and advance in truth because my mind is finite. So I want to assimilate and grow and move forward in knowledge and truth, but never come to a point where we rest satisfied that we now possess truth. This is the truth. Put down our stakes and nothing else can be it. No, we want to always be moving forward. And so the fault would be in the persons who refuse to have a mind. So it says in 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians that the wicked are destroyed because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. They didn't have a heart. It's not that they didn't know the truth. That's not what it says. They didn't know the truth. They didn't love the truth, which, which is different than knowing the truth. Loving the truth means you have a heart that says, hey, I, I may not know all things, but I have a heart that loves to discover, loves to move forward, loves to be educated, loves to be corrected when new truth is available. So I'm willing to move forward in truth. Those who are lost don't have that heart attitude. They don't want truth because truth will unsettle their way of, of doing things. In their ignorance, God winked at them. What does that mean in this context? Okay, so you have to pull out the actual verse, and then we can look at that verse. Okay? Yes? So it's really to have a mindset of truth seeker. Yes. All through life. Yes, and, and, and God has given us three evidence, three evidentiary pathways to discover truth. What are the evidentiary pathways? Scripture. Scripture. Science. Science and nature. Experience. And experience. And, and if you want to know, I don't know how there's so many people teaching so many different things. How do I know? If you anchor your interpretations of Scripture into God's design laws, how he's constructed reality to work, and how your lone, lone life experiences work, all three harmonize, then you're going to have confidence this is an accurate understanding. And when we separate the threads, we get very confused. Yes. So I want to go back to the cave analogy. Yes. That is, we may not be able to get people out of the cave, but we can take a flashlight in. And the other thing that I always try to do is get them to take one step towards the entrance. They don't have to go all the way out, but it's one step at a time. So I love that. And so what's happening at the end of time, 
If we read the, if we put the piece of scripture together in various places, the Bible describes darkness covers the earth, gross darkness to people. Jesus is the light which lightens all men. This darkness is a darkness of comprehension, darkness of understanding, a darkness of reality. And then Malachi prophesies at the end of time that the sun of righteousness will rise, the S-U-N of righteousness will rise with healing in his Wings is the old King James. The word in the Hebrew actually means in the rays, the things that extend out from. It's the rays, the beams of light and truth. Now think about, you've been in that cave. You haven't had any light for weeks. What happens if they try to bring you out at noon on a bright day? Do, do, you, do you want to come out or do you run back in? What happens if you come out at five in the morning and you sit there as the sun rises? Okay, The sun of righteousness is rising with healing in his rays and beams of truth. And so the truth is being revealed at the end of time. Increasing truth, is, and it's, it's compounding and getting brighter and brighter and brighter until the day dawns. And that's where we're at. But those who reject it, when it finally comes, for those of us who are assimilating truth, it's like sitting there. We are embracing the truth. We're bringing it in. We're growing with the truth. And thus we can take more and more and more. And when Christ comes, we see him face to face for we shall be like him. But those who have not loved the truth, have not been assimilating, not growing as the truth is rising at the end of time, when he appears in his full glory, they will beg for the mountains to fall. I'd rather be in the cave. I don't want to see this truth. It's It's overwhelming. Yes, back there, somebody, hand. Yeah. When Christ comes, we will not all be there. To the supreme revelation, rehealing, full knowledge. Now, are you talking about the saved, or are you talking about the saved versus the lost? The saved. Okay, so we will all be where we love truth. All the saved will be at hearts that love truth. Now, we all won't have come to the same understanding of God, his reality, why certain things happened in history, this interpretation of Bible prophecy, what were the ten horns. Uh, We won't have the same understanding of all the facts, but we will all have a love for truth and a love for God and a love for each other. Amen. We may not all have the same name for God. Yeah, that's right. But doesn't that, the man on the cross is kind of proof of that. He was right where he was. Yes, but he had a heart that was willing. That's the key. So back to these questions of doctrines. Oh, here's some more questions we're going to kind of reason out about saved. Can a person be saved while rejecting the methods of God? Yes. While rejecting his methods, his methods of love, truth, and freedom. I reject love, truth, and freedom. Can I be saved? No. No, you can't. You can't because the, the salvation is restoring one to harmony with God's methods. And how would you be happy in his presence forever if you didn't agree with what he... There you go. Yeah. Um, can, a, can a person be saved who doesn't worship on Sabbath? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Now, remember, we're talking about right doctrine. We're in the context of right doctrine. What is the importance of right doctrine to bring us back to a trust relation with God such that we have a renewed heart to be like Jesus? And can people who never worship on Sabbath experience a trust relationship with God and be renewed to be like Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. Can a person be saved who's never been baptized by water? Yes. Yes. Can a person be saved who never joins a Christian church? Yes. Can a person be saved who believes in immortality of the soul? Yes. Of course. Yes. Can a person be saved who believes in eternal burning hell? No. Yes. 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 Can a person be saved who does not believe in the Trinity? Yes. Can a person be saved who doesn't believe in six days of creation? Yes. See, we're talking about correct doctrine. You see why I'm asking these questions? Because there's this idea that if you don't hold the correct doctrine, you can't be saved. But you're actually refuting that. No, if you, you can be wrong on these doctrinal points and still be saved. Interesting, guys. You're very rebellious. <laughs> can a person be saved who doesn't part... Pardon? Can you be rebellious? <laughs> yes. It, yes, you can. It depends, on, it depends on what you're rebelling against. If you're rebelling against the methods of the world... You can absolutely be saved. Oh, yes. Can a person be saved who doesn't partake communion? Can a person be saved who rejects truth, who rejects love, who rejects freedom, who values coercion? No. How about, though, if they're, if they're on the church board? No. So doctrines are important as they enlighten us and inform us about 
reality, which originates in God, so it's informing us about God, who is the creator, and then brings us back to a trust. Ultimately, doctrine is designed to bring us back to understand our condition, who God is, his trustworthiness, so that we come to a point we say, I trust you, and I surrender my heart to you and invite you in, and then we experience rebirth, renewal, regeneration, recreation of the inner man. This is the key to doctrine, to bring us to this. Doctrines that obstruct that, that instead cause us to form theologies that put barriers between us and God, which many of Christian doctrines do. I, I have Jesus who protects me from God because if he wasn't there, God would be required to lash out and hurt me. I, I trust Jesus, but, 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 but I don't trust the Father if Jesus wasn't there to keep him reined in. You see, these types of doctrines are common in Christianity and that undermine, we don't really trust, we don't fully open the heart. Yes? In terms of uh, the way of looking at this, it's a really elementary example, I guess, but I don't know if anybody else could benefit from this, but what this makes me think of, you know, having these certain beliefs and then whether they're saved or not, and we talked about the direction. I don't know if anybody um, remembers learning in pre-calculus or calculus back in high school, but... There's three different graphs that you are familiar with. There's position, there's velocity, and then there's acceleration. And what each one measures is, and this is more going, I guess, on a design basis thing, but when you have, an ex- when you have they're each derivatives of each other. So once you take the derivative of velocity, you get acceleration. And the way I guess it's kind of opened my eyes to is, it's not, it's the condition of their heart and their reception of truth, but it's about which direction they're going. Are they going closer to truth? There you go. And or, there you go. Or are they going further away? It's not exactly their position in the truth. It's, it's their... That's right. You're exactly right. It's their right. velocity, so to speak, where it's a, it's a direction they're going. And that... And the acceleration, the derivative of that, the acceleration is the state of their heart. It's a state of whether they are renewed in trust to God or not. Yeah, I like that. Very nice. That's right. I'm still stuck in the eternal burning hell. What do you mean? (laughs) Can you be saved if you believe in eternal burning hell? No. Why not? Well, because how could you want to live with somebody that you think is going to burn somebody to death for not loving? Oh, okay. But see, now you've just shifted it away from eternal burning hell to the conclusion that they may never have processed, and that is what kind of a being would create a universe in which their children, their creatures, are being tormented for all. So now you're, you're, you're connecting the doctrine back to a view of God, and a view of God that, but many Christians who actually ha- hold this view have held it without actually exploring the deeper meaning of what it might mean. It's just been something they've been taught, and they've never questioned it. But they've come to love God and love Christ, and they have the heart renewed to love others, but this point they've never really come to clarity on. Let's look at some specific doctrines. And the question is, what does this doctrine tell us about God? That's the question. What kind of God versus this way versus that way? And I'm going to try to give some insights on, here's a helpful way to understand it. Here's maybe a harmful way to understand it. But first one, holy scriptures. The scriptures are inspired by God and are are useful for teaching, training, and correcting righteousness, and so forth. Old and New Testaments. What is that doctrine? That's a doctrine that pretty much every Christian church holds, that the Bible is an inspired word of God which contains the information necessary for the salvation of human beings. It doesn't contain the information necessary to build a rocket ship to go to the moon. That information is not in the Bible. It's not its purpose. So it doesn't contain all truth about all different elements of study. It contains the truth necessary for salvation. That's a Christian doctrine. So what does that doctrine tell us about God? Think about it. It's quite, quite profound, guys. Does it, does it tell us that God is willing to communicate with fallen beings? To reveal truth. First off, does it tell us that we already know everything? No. no, that we don't know things. We have to be enlightened. We have to have truth revealed to us. And God is willing to step down and communicate on a level that we can comprehend. What kind of God would do that? What kind of God would take the time to explain things to rebels? What does it mean about his methods that he would explain and educate rather than simply say, get in line or else? Is it, is, it, is it some aspect of his character that he would approach it that way rather than just say, here are the rules, keep them, and I've got my angels with the swords right here and they're ready to slash out and get you guys if you don't, that he actually reveals truth, leaves us free to think and weigh, come let us reason together though your sins are like scarlet, he wants us to weigh it out for ourselves. So helpful ideas, I think, about understanding this doctrine are that truths, wisdoms, 
of the Scripture are primarily about God, His character, His design, His methods. In contrast to Satan's methods and designs, they're being contrasted in Scripture. So if you read Scripture, you see here there are individuals and examples of people practicing God's methods contrasted with people who decide to break God's methods. And then the consequences of each. We're being educated and enlightened. One path leads to peace, joy, health, restoration. One path leads to pain, suffering that cascades out into your community as you break God's design. You think of the lives and the stories. Also, it's helpful to recognize that the Bible was inspired with ideas or concepts, not with specific word choices. In other words, the words of Scripture are not special or magic. You can't just get the read and, and say these words. They become an incantation, and that incantation, if you say the right word in the right way, you have some, uh, you know, tapping into some universal energy, the force somewhere, and you can then wield it. And that, that's, that's mysticism. That's magic. That is not... The Bible contains concepts and ideas, and thus you can replace the specific words with other words. That's why you can take Hebrew and Greek words and replace them with English words and read an English Bible and still get the truth. As long as the concepts are retained. Unhelpful or harmful ways to understand this doctrine would be that the words must be taken literally. There's no metaphor Example of this, Rasputin, a 8th century monk, reads in Scripture where Jesus in the New Testament is having communion. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And he says, Jesus would never lie, so it must be literal. Therefore, he wrote a paper on the transubstantiation that when you take communion, it turns into the literal physical flesh of Jesus' body and the literal blood. How did this happen? Up for 800 years, no Christian priest or pope ever believed in transubstantiation. But now this monk writes this paper and this idea takes off through Christianity that when you partake of communion, it literally transforms into human flesh and human blood once it passes the, the back of the throat before it hits the stomach. Why? Because this is literal interpretation rather than understanding metaphor, simile, parable, and seeking the meaning behind it. So literal interpretation is not what the scripture is designed to, to do. Um, or how about the Bible's a instruction manual of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned. That's its primary purpose. You find the right list of things to do and the right way to do them and you just do those and that's the plan. No, that's an unhelpful way to understand scripture. It's a revelation of God to bring us back to a trust relationship with him who then heals the inner person. And you can't get that by getting the right checklist, which is Galatians, what we're talking about, which is a law observance system. You can't heal yourself by observing the law. How about when the Bible can only be read in the King James English and every other version is wrong? You guys laugh at me. Yeah, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Okay? That's a good one. I like that. But, but you laugh, but there are people who actually think this way. All right, second doctrine, Trinity. Doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three eternal, co-equal, life original, unbarred, underived, all fully divine. Helpful way, God is, what's the scripture say? Love. Can love, as you understand the function of love, does love operate in isolation? No. It does not. So love does not operate in a singularity. Functional love requires an other. Now, self-sacrificial love ultimately doesn't operate in a dyad. For those of you who do any type of counseling... There are relationships in, that look very loving. Hus uh, young couple gets married, and they're happy. They do stuff together. They're, they're just, and it might go on for years, five years, ten years. They, they sp spend their time with you, buy gifts for each other, go, go travel together. They, you say, these people are in love. And then they have their first child. <laughs> and, the, and the mother stops going and doing certain things with the husband. She has to take time for the child and she's tired and she can't do something. And he begins to get irritable and frustrated. We used to do this. You don't do this with me anymore. You don't have time for me anymore. Because the dyad was narcissistic reinforcement. Both adoring and worshiping each other and making each other feel good about each other. The smallest number you can have for self-sacrificial love is three. Where one will sacrifice for the benefit of the other two. 
Thus the Trinity really is the smallest number of a deity who is truly other-centered. And thus is one of the reasons Satan attacks the doctrine of the Trinity. Because he wants God's character to be something other than functional love. So a harmful, a harmful view of the Trinity is, okay, even if, if you, is to reject the idea of the Trinity, then you get narcissistic reinforcement, you get a singularity. Or if you accept the idea of a Trinity, then you make it a hierarchical organization where one go- member of the Godhead is a, the, the authoritative power that the other two are subservient and report to and follow the instructions on or needs to work on to get to, and so you have Jesus pleading to the Father's blood so the Father won't lash out and the Father's the ultimate authority that Jesus has to report back to. This type of construct is very, and it's also unhealthy view of the Trinity. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his Son, but gave him up. How will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. Also, in addition to who? The Father. So true Trinitarian understanding is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united in their intercessions for sinful human beings and they intercede in three places. They intercede with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding a check and putting restraints, holding back the four winds of strife, the, the angel armies that Elisha was, was uh, able to see and his servants see, holding back evil, keeping it in certain limits and checks. Intercedes in the heart and mind. In Genesis 3, I put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the servant, the woman being the church. Put a desire for good in the heart. Put a conviction, a drawing, a wooing. And then in the person of Jesus Christ, the, the Godhead interceded with the natural course of what sin would do to the human race. If God didn't send Christ, the human race was on a trajectory to, to extinction. There was only one outcome for the human race without Christ. Extinction. But God sent Christ and he who became sin... He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we're not destined to a terminal extinction. Now we have the option of going down a path of becoming righteous because of Jesus. He interceded with that trajectory. This is true intercession. Anything else is part of a corruption of the Trinity. What about creation? We're talking about doctrines. We're asking the question, what do these doctrines tell us about God? Do we see a God who is trustworthy, a God that we can love? helpful view god is the creator who designed his creation to operate in harmony with his own nature of love and we see those principles and we've given them many times in here i'm not going to go through them again built right into nature and deviations from his design are terminal it destroys those who deviate god is the loving designer seeking to restore and heal those just like if you had a child who was hanging themselves with a cord and you walked in you would immediately to do justice to do righteousness seek to remove the cord and put them in harmony with the law of respiration to restore them to how life operates that's what you'd seek to do you wouldn't seek to punish them for breaking the law harmful view of creation god didn't create directly in six literal days but used evolutionary forces over millions of years with strong with a strong killing the weak to eventually evolve human beings to the point we are today think that through if that's the way god works he's the source of suffering and pain and death why do some christians believe this because they're operating on human imposed law construct and under the human imposed law construct justice requires that god does punish and kill therefore killing comes out for god so it's not a stretch that he also uses killing to evolve us and help us grow nature of man what does it say about god that we as beings have free will choice he could have made us robots He could have made it so that we were incapable of rebelling or disobeying or deviating from his design. But if we're robots and incapable of deviating from his design, what kind of being is he? Could we love? Can you love if you have no freedom? If you had the ability to put nanochips in your kids, nanochip computer little technology, and they they lodge in their brain, and you could program your kids to come to you three times a day and say, Mommy, I love you. Would that be love? No. You wouldn't do it to your kids. What does it say about God that he hasn't done that? That he is truly loved, that we have real freedom. What does it say about our ability to procreate beings in our image? What does it say about God that he gave us an ability to create beings in our image? Wow. What do do we learn about God that he would give us that power? What does it say about God that he gave human beings dominion over lower life forms? You know, we have dominion to govern on this planet. 
how do we use that? We can use it in a godly way. We can use it in an ungodly way, just like we can use our procreative abilities in a godly way or in an ungodly way. But those abilities have been given us. What does it say about God? He would give us these abilities. How about more? What does it say about God? That we either believe God created Adam and Eve in Eden with conditional immortality, meaning they're mortal, but they stay immortal as long as they stay in harmony with God and his design. But if they break harmony with God's design, then they lose immortality and they die without salvation, intervention from God. Versus that in Eden, God at that time created them with some aspect of immortality that can never die, no matter what they do. Those two views say different things about God. Do we believe God has foreknowledge? Yes or no? If God has foreknowledge, then did he foreknow that man would rebel? Yes. Then what would it say about God if he foreknew they would rebel, and then when he created them, he created them with some part of them that could never die, knowing that they would rebel, and then knowing that there would be billions of human beings who might only live 12 or 15 or 20 years on earth and never come to a knowledge of saving knowledge of Christ, who lived uh, in an abusive environment, and, and they went into violence themselves, and they die at a young age. And then they suffer for all eternity in hell. God foreknew it, but he gave him immortality anyway, knowing that billions would suffer for all eternity. What kind of God would he be? And if he doesn't have foreknowledge, well, he didn't know. It was like it caught him by surprise. Oh, man. Why didn't I see that one coming? You see the problem, what kind of God he would be if we teach that way. And some people believe that. Some people try to get around it because they still hold the immortality of the soul. And so they teach this, this type of idea that God really doesn't know the future and those possibilities of the future. These doctrines go back to how we see God. What about the great controversy, the controversy over God's actual trustworthiness? What kind of a God would actually allow his creatures to question him? Think that through. It says something that Lucifer wasn't snuffed out. God had the power. As soon as Lucifer started to question, he could have snuffed Lucifer out and snuffed all memory of Lucifer out so no being would have ever said, where's Lucifer? They don't have a memory that he ever existed. God could have done that. What's it say about God? He didn't. It would have been wonderful, somebody said. Really? Would it be wonderful to live in a universe where you actually don't have freedom? It's all, it's all pretense. It's all, it's all a, a scam. It's a lie. Everything you think is true isn't true because it's all manipulated by the one who has power to manipulate your memories. Do you, do you want to live in a universe like that? Love really doesn't exist. Love for love to exist. If you understand the law of liberty, love only exists where there's genuine freedom. Can I get you to love me by coercing you, threatening you? Can I get you to love me by messing with your memories? Even if I had the ability, think about it, that you didn't know. I didn't just program you, but I, 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 I messed with your memories so you thought things about me that weren't true. You thought I saved your life when you were, when you were 12. You thought that I, that, I, that I donated a kidney to your son. You, you thought I did, and I never did any of these things, but you thought that of me. And you come to love me. Would it be genuine love or would it be a, a, pre, a pretense of love? But still we're back to the thing that if you never knew sin, never knew it existed, the that qu- wouldn't be a good thing. So, so what would it say about God? What kind of being would he be if he created a universe that w- operated that way? Would he be a, 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 a would he, number one, be a God of truth? No. And this is really the question. We destroy everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So if we go down that trail and say, well, yeah, he could have done that, then we're saying that he can manipulate, he can lie, he can deceive. He really isn't the source of all truth. Jesus, when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, didn't really mean it. This really goes back to that question, doesn't it? He wouldn't be a God of love either because it's not real freedom. What about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do we learn about God because of this? Helpful way? Helpful way as I think I see it, Jesus partook of our humanity in order to fix what Adam's sin did to humanity. Expose Satan as a liar and fraud and destroy the lies of Satan by revealing the truth about God, to uh, destroy the infection of fear and selfishness. And you see, he was tempted in every way just like we are, the Bible says, yet without sin. And we are tempted by our own evil desires, it says. And so he had this powerful human emotion, you see it in Gethsemane, agonizing human emotion to not go through the cross, tempting to act to save self. But at every turn, Christ says, not my will be done. No one can take my life. I'll give it freely. He acts to love perfectly. And thus in his humanity, he restores humankind back to God's original intention for humankind. Yes. And to me, that just speaks to the, the redeeming truth that um, 
when you recognize that he can be trusted, it, it, the verses that say, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm going to finish what I started, is that you can wholeheartedly trust him because he would go as far as dying to make sure that you knew he would never take away the free choice. Yeah, I love what you just said. So this is another point. Power corrupts. An absolute power corrupts. Did Jesus have all power? Was he corrupted? But that was one of the allegations. God can't be trusted with power. Jesus proves that he would rather let his creatures kill him than use power to stop them. Whoa. This is why in Revelation, after the we see in heaven, every time the lamb that was slain, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he is the only one who can be trusted with all power. He's proven it. We don't have to fear his use of power. Exactly well said. And another element that was revealed through Jesus Christ, victorious living as a human being, that in Eden there was no manufacturer's defect. God did not manufacture Adam and Eve faultily. There was no fault in their construction. Jesus demonstrated as a human being to, he could live perfectly, even in a human humanity weaker than one Adam had. What about baptism? Oh, a harmful way to understand um, the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Christ? Well, God was angry. His law was broken. Someone had to pay the penalty. God, God, God's justice required the infliction of the death penalty. Christ came to be our substitute so that God could kill him in our place, and God executed him on the cross, and then he accepts the legal payment on our behalf on the record books in heaven, and if you claim that, you're stamped forgiven, and God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. A form of godliness, but with no power. It has no transforming power in the heart. And it's all based on the God's government runs like the United States or Rome or any other human government. But Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. My government doesn't run this way. I, I, I build reality. I'm restoring, restoring my creation back to its original design. That's what I'm doing here. Cooperate with me, I'll restore you too. Yes, Wendell. If that was true, that Christ could have died as an infant, and he wouldn't have had to live a life well said. So here we have baby, sinless baby Jesus as a human being. Herod's trying to kill him. We need a blood sacrifice of a human sinless baby or human sinless being. Uh, he could have allowed that to happen. It would have been done. The blood's been shed. The payment's been made. Boom. Claim the legal payment. Done. It's not what was necessary. Never was necessary. It also makes sense in comparison whenever God refers to nations as beasts compared to this love that we're talking about when we view God and his character, it, it does seem beastly. It does seem completely contradictory to... It does seem, like, brutish. It just, compared to the love that he exhibits and then the way that governments work here on earth, it just, in comparison, it's beastly. You're right. So baptism, helpful way to understand baptism. Remember, question, how do we understand God? Baptism, water baptism, is symbol. Symbol of the immersion of your heart mind, and character into God, where fear and selfishness, guilt and shame are washed away, and you have a new heart and right spirit, cleansing waves of love and truth come in, and you rise with a new heart and a new motive. It's the internal washing away through the spirit of the old motives and the old desires and the old ways, and you're in it. That's a symbol, symbolic way of experiencing the true baptism of the spirit. Do you think it also ties in with rebirth metaphor as well? That's, that's it, the rebirth. Water. Yep, exactly. But the harmful way to understand this doctrine, well, God set up this ritual, and he said you had to do it in a certain way, and if you don't do it in a certain way, you don't get your checkbox, and therefore you can't be saved. Or that water baptism itself is saving. As long as I went under the water, I'm saved. The water did it. I went through the ritual. And the pastor said the right words. And I even went to the Jordan. And I was baptized in the Jordan. It's really magic water there. <laughs> Communion. Helpful. Bread and wine are symbols. Ultimately, Christ replaced two other symbols with the bread and wine. The two other symbols he replaced were flesh and blood that were coming out of the sacrificial system. The priest would eat the flesh and the blood would be applied to the horns. Okay? He's replacing that with bread and wine. Bread for flesh, wine for the blood. Remember, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my flesh. Okay? That's the bread. These are, but they're symbolic. That's all they are. They're symbols about our salvation. And just think about it. As bread and wine are actually nutritional building blocks molecularly for your body. As you ingest them, they become the broken down, they become individual building blocks to become parts of the cells and the structure of your body that nurture you and keep you healthy. 
so too then the bread of life. I am Jesus is the word, the word made flesh. As we partake of the words of truth, those words of truth become building blocks of our ideas, our beliefs, our values, ultimately forming and shaping our character, winning us to trust. And as we've come to know the truth as it is in Jesus, those building blocks form, we open the heart and we partake of the life of Christ, which is symbolic by the blood. It pours his love into our hearts, as in Romans 5.5. 5. And this is the symbolism. The reality is we have to partake of the truth, which wins us to trust, and then the Spirit comes and reproduces Christ in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's the bread and the wine. That's a helpful way to understand it, symbolically. And just as you were, he wasn't setting up just a ceremony, he was telling them, whenever you meet and whenever you break bread and drink wine, remember me. Because just as your body needs to be nurtured with nutrition every day, your soul, your heart, mind needs to take in truth in my character every day. So at every meal you're to remember what Christ has done for you. And every meal you're to be taking in with truth and love. Not having a you know three, four times a year little ceremony and think you're, you're taken care of. So unhelpful way. Bread and wine are either magical or legal. They magically transform into the literal flesh and blood and therefore does something in you magically. Or they fulfill legal requirements that must be taken in order for Jesus when you take the bread and wine. Then Jesus, as you do that, goes to the Father in your behalf and he pleads the Father and reminds the Father, either pleads the sacrifice then or reminds the Father that 2,000 years ago he sacrificed on your behalf and applies the sacrifice to your legal debt and the Father forgives you. Which is taught in both the, in the Catholic view, when you take the, uh, the Eucharist, then Christ goes and offers a sacrifice to the Father at that time to pay your debt. In the Protestant traditional penal view, when you um, confess your sin, then Jesus goes and reminds the Father, and presents his merits to the Father, and reminds the Father that 2,000 years ago all the sins were placed on you, and he paid your debt then, and now he's applying that debt payment now. Do you see that both of these people miss the point that they have a God who has to be bought off by the human sacrifice to appease his wrath or, or satisfy his justice. They missed the whole concept of what it says about God to believe that God would do that. Oh, and I've got a couple more in here, but I think maybe we'll move on. If you want to, it's in the notes. I've got the, the Sabbath and I've got Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. But maybe we should move on because we've done enough doctrines today. <laughs> so Sunday's lesson points us to Galatians four twelve through 20. And the verses. Galatians 4, 12 through 20 from the NIV say, I plead to you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong, and, and you know it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel from God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provide, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. What's Paul's concern? If you read the whole thing, right near the end, he tells you his core concern. What's his goal for them? Verse 18. No, verse 19. Verse 19. Until Christ is formed in you. His goal is that Christ be formed in them. This is, what, this is what he was laboring for. The lesson rightly points out in the last paragraph, quote from the lesson, to be a follower of Christ is more than just the profession of faith. It involves a radical transformation into the likeness of Christ. Is this radical transformation a legal event or a healing process or action? It's healing. So the, this is genuine salvation, guys. Being reborn, regenerated, and all those other metaphors. But it's interesting. We received an email at our class this week. A person who just now came across a document that was created seven years ago and was presented to this group who were here seven. How many here seven years ago when we first started coming over here? Some of you were. And there was a group of, and I met for oh, multiple months with a group of pastors and theology professors. And, and then after our conversations together, they formed a document. If you remember the document. And they came here and presented the document. And the person just emailed us this week, having read the document and wanting to know if, if I had responded to it. And I have, and my response is the God-shaped heart. 
<laughs> the book, okay? But to sum up their position of those theologians, here was their position. They acknowledge that our healing message is found in Scripture. They acknowledge that. But they went on to say, but the scripture is rich with many other metaphors like ransom, lost and found, and the legal metaphor, and that because we emphasize only the healing, that we diminish the scripture, and their view is much richer and deeper because they include all the metaphors, including the metaphor of healing. Do you see what they've just done? Hope you see it. Metaphor is only metaphor as long as it's directly connected to some reality. If there is no reality to which the metaphor is pointing, it's not metaphor, it's fantasy. Think about that. Metaphor is teaching a reality. There has to be a reality it teaches. If there's no reality, it's not metaphor. What they have just done, if they have, by suggesting that what we teach in here is metaphor, they have taken away the reality. Do you believe that recreation into Christ's likeness, healing, restoration, rebirth, renewal, all the metaphors, circumstances, all these metaphors that are teaching, what they are teaching is healing to be like Christ again, freedom. Do you think that's metaphor? Is that reality? That's the reality. They deny the reality and say it's metaphor. Thus they teach fantasy. And what's the fantasy? This is fantasy. We're in legal trouble with God. Someone had to pay a legal penalty. Jesus died. God, God, God had to execute justice upon a son. That's fantasy. It's not reality. And they get that because they deny the reality of God in Christ working to heal and restore all who trust him. And then those other metaphors are teaching the same thing. They deny the reality of God's law as well. They do that as well. But by the way, this is the exact same problem. And you say, how's this connected to our lesson? Because this is exactly the exact problem Paul was dealing with with the Galatians in this passage. The exact same problem Paul is real concern is that they experienced Christ renewed within. That's his concern. But he was concerned that these other preachers were coming in and turning them away to a specific thing. The very next verse, Galatians 4.21. Notice Galatians 4.21. What's Paul's concern? Tell me. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? In other words, he is concerned that rather than a message that brings Christ within renewal, they are being duped into a legal system of salvation. A law system. That's the same battle we're still in today. Monday's lesson points out that to the other churches, Paul at times challenged them to imitate his behavior, but with the Galatians, he instead challenged them to become like him. Become like me rather than imitate me. Is there a difference in behaving versus becoming? Absolutely. What's the difference in behaving versus becoming? What's the difference? When you become, you're changed. Where are you changed when you become? Transformed. Where? Yeah, in your mind, in your heart. Exactly. So the lesson states, Paul is referring to his experience as... A, oh, and then he, then he goes on to say um, to, uh, to, that Paul also uh, uh, models himself after them. What does he do that is like them? He wants them to become like him, but he has become like them. How did he become like them? What did Paul stop doing when he accepted Christ? He stopped persecuting Christians, for sure. But we're talking particularly, we're talking now in the plan of salvation, uh, practicing your religion. Did Paul's religious practices change? Oh, he stopped insisting on circumcision. Did he? Did in other words, he stopped living like a Jew under the Jewish Levitical law, and he started living like a Gentile who didn't have to abide by all those rules and stuff. So you become like me in renewal of heart. I become like you, free from all this this theater. I was in theater for many years and I was on stage and I was acting out these things, but the theater is irrelevant because the reality has come and now we have the reality. We don't have to do the theater anymore. I become like you, a partaker of reality. Tuesday's lesson, Paul talks about how Paul 
not only challenged the Galatians to become like him and eternal, but he, be, he became like them. Okay, and then the last paragraph talks about contextualization. Context, although contextualization is not always easy, insofar as we are able to separate the heart of the gospel from the cultural cocoon, it's contextualize the message and uh, to contextualize the message of Christ without compromising its content, we should become imitators of Paul. So the cores that cannot be compromised, I would say, are God's character and designs of love, truth, and freedom, his principles and how reality works. Salvation is a genuine trust relationship in God that results in renewal of the heart so that we love God and we love others more than self. That cannot be compromised. Everybody agree? But can these things be contextualized, meaning they can be very different depending on culture and context. Religious ceremonies, like Circumcision, do or not, baptisms, communions, weddings, funerals, Sabbath observance, church liturgy, how we conduct the service and the order of service, and are all those things contextualizable? What about music? Only only the pipe organ. (laughs) What about dress? Jewelry, no jewelry. Uh, Dresses below the knee, uh, dress below the ankle. Uh, actually, dresses versus the pantsuits for women. You know, you know, it's you're going to hell if you wear a pantsuit. Okay. Diet. Can diet be contextualized? It can be contextualized for the purpose of salvation. You cannot be saved by eating the right foods. It cannot be contextualized for the purpose of what's healthy. Let's be clear on that. The laws of health are an observation. Ob- ob- uh, they are still operational. The laws of health. But they have no bearing on whether you've accepted Jesus and have a good character or not. You can, in other words, eat cheese and still have a good character. (laughs) What about, yes? But if you live so unhealthily, your mind might be clouded, so it's more difficult for you to perceive God and communicate with Him. So, so now we're doing a different element, and that is our capacity for growth. We could still trust God, but we may, not, we may undermine our capacity for growth or usefulness. So a person who has morbid obesity will not be able to engage in the same uh, levels of service for God's cause as a person, without, a person who smokes cigarettes and has bad COPD, is on oxygen and tied to a tank, will not be able to do the same service, same ministry in God's cause as a person who doesn't have those things. So when we violate the laws of health, we, uh, we absolutely undermine our capacity for cognitive comprehension and our capacity for service to others living out the law of love. Absolutely we do. That doesn't necessarily mean though that we we are self-centered or haven't been reborn. What about uh, church organization? Can that be contextualized? What about ordination? What about gender roles in the church? Is that contextualizable? What about the use of alcohol? Careful now. Just read the New Testament, guys. What did Paul tell Timothy? Drink a little wine for your stomach. Why? If you look at the history of the human race prior to the the era we live in now, where we have sanitation and we have water treatment plants and water treatment facilities, it was common that people, especially if they traveled, and Timothy was traveling out of his zone to other zones, were constantly getting all types of GI infections. That's why the British Navy, whenever they went places, did not give water to their sailors. They gave grog. Grog was a very low level of alcohol content because the alcohol low level would kill the microbes that were in the local water okay and so this was a medicinal and so is there a contextualization of using wine or alcohol of course there is yes as they're building the, the cathedral in florence the time it took to climb the ladders and everything up to the top of the cathedral was so long and so to prevent lack of progress on the building of this building they gave the workers something that had alcohol in it, which killed the bacteria, which they did not have dysentery. That's my point. Up and down all the time. But to, for their safety, they had to be harnessed in with harnesses so that the effect of the alcohol would not make them fall off the ladder. <laughs> there you go. So now we're going to get to this. Now, I haven't got any difficult ones yet. I haven't got any difficult ones yet. We're running out of time, so I'm going to leave these difficult ones for you to contemplate through over the next week. But are these contextualizable? Polygamy. Yes. You're not letting people think. You're giving the answers. Slavery. 
If you say no, just read your, your Bible. Read through history. Read cultures and times. Read Le- Levitical law. You know, what, what could a person do with their, with their earlobe and wearing an earring, guys, in Levitical law? What was that about? Hmm. What about drug use? What about homosexuality? Okay, I'm not going to give you the answers. You guys have work to do. <laughs> and we didn't even get into the miracles that we were going to get into in Thursday's and Wednesday's lesson. So let's go ahead and close class with prayer. Great, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth, love, and freedom, and only in harmony with your character of love, your methods of truth, your principles of freedom is their healing and restoration. We ask that your spirit be poured out. Take what Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. Write your law, your law of love on our hearts and minds and give us the ability to have great discernment, to be able to discern the true from the false and and effectiveness in, in teaching others your ways so that this world will be enlightened with the truth of your kingdom and that we will see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.